y'all pray with me? Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for a place and for people that we get together uh, with week after week to sing to you, to hear your word, to pray together, and Lord, to equip one another for the work of the ministry. You have called us to a ministry, the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation by preaching that you, oh God, were in Christ reconciling the world to yourself. That is our ministry that you've given to us. And so, Lord, I pray for this morning. Uh, I pray that this, uh, our time thinking together in your word and about your word would, would be to that end. That we would be better equipped uh, to obey your command to make disciples of all nations. Would you, would you grant grace and mercy this morning? We ask it in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Well, so it would be very presumptuous of me to assume that when you come to church here, you have really high expectations of the preaching that you're about to hear. That would be presumptuous. But whatever um, sort of expectations that you have on today's sermon, if everybody would just grab the dial and turn it down three or four clicks as far as what you're expecting from this sermon. I say that because um, I am, as you guys who've been here any number of years know, I'm an expositional preacher. I like to have a text that we're working through, one text that I'm teaching the, the content of that one text. And today is going to be vastly different. Um, I've been uh, thinking on um, an idea in, in particular, uh, eschatological um, end times ideas and how they inform the life and the health of the church. And so today is going to be kind of a shotgun blast of a lot of different things concerning eschatology, concerning what happens at the end of human history. And so the way I want to approach it is to ask uh, to ask where in the story are we? Where in the story are we? If I were any sort of scholar, I would have already written this book. But the idea is, we um, anytime you read a story, part of the reason we read stories is to figure out who we're like and what story we ourselves are in so that we can live faithfully and know what it looks like to, to, to be faithful to God. And so as we read the the overarching story of God's narrative, we need to be asking, where are we right now? What, what are we supposed to be doing? Where are we in the story? Are we in the beginning, middle, and where? And so what I want to do is I want to talk to you. At, at first, I'm just going to give you some categories of uh, some answers that people have put on this question. And instead of trying to give you a lot of theological terms and all of those things, I want to, I want to put us in one of three different stories in the Old Testament so that you can see what it would feel like for us to be, um, what, what's, what part of the Old Testament story would we be in, let's say, if we were premillennial or if we were amillennial or if we were postmillennial, and you don't have to know those terms yet, I'll, uh, I'll explain, okay? So categories first, and then we'll think about these things together. So first of all, if we were premillennial, which, by the way, if you've never thought much about eschatology and you grew up in America, you are probably, by default, a premillennial. Probably. So if we were a premillennial, where in the Old Testament would we be? And the idea is, we, we, we know Christ, Christ our great Passover lamb, he has come and redeemed us from sin, from Satan, from death and hell. And so, we would say, okay, we're... We're not in slavery in Egypt. We've been, we've gone through the Passover. We've gone through the baptism in the Red Sea. We've gone to Sinai. We've gotten the law, right? Uh, when, when Moses goes up, God gives the law on Ten Commandments. We, when the Holy Spirit comes to us, the law is written not on tablets of stone, but on our hearts. So we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so from a premillennial perspective, the question is, well, where, where are we after that? And the answer that a premillennial should give is that we are in the wilderness wanderings. We're 40 years wandering in the wilderness. If you guys know the story, they came up to the promised land and uh, they sent spies in. Ten of the spies came back and said, we can't do it. There are giants in the land. And God said, because you didn't believe that I was able to cause you to inherit what I'm giving you, 
You're now going to turn and I'm going to lead you through the wilderness for 40 years and you're going to die. This generation, 40 years, this generation is all going to die. And then I'm going to take your kids who you thought the giants would eat. It's literally what they said. You thought those giants in the land, and I believe they were real giants, are going to eat your children. And I'm going to show you my might. And so I'm going to take your children, I'm going to raise them up, and they're going to conquer the land. So from a premillennial perspective, we are post-Exodus, post-Sinai, pre-Joshua. We have not started to conquest and to conquer the land. We're sort of uh, living in the wilderness. And so this view holds that the world is kind of continually going down. And there's nothing that anybody can do about it until Jesus returns. This is um, probably, like I say probably, the view that you grew up under. And if you've been in this church for a long time, this is the view that I've held for a very long time. That the world is turning downward, that the kingdom will not come to this earth until Jesus has returned. And I want to say something very important here. From a premillennial perspective, right? We, God, has, uh, God told Israel, I swear in my wrath, you shall not enter my rest. And so you're all going to walk for 40 years until that generation dies. From a premillennial perspective, not only are we unable to take a conquest and to, and to uh, take over the land... It would be sinful for us to try. If you remember in Numbers 13, they heard the word that they're all going to die in the wilderness. And they say, no, we, we don't want to do that. We'll go up and conquest. We'll take over. And God says, don't do it. I told you, don't do it. They tried it anyway. And what happened? They were slaughtered. For them to go at that moment in history was sinful for them to try. So there are premillennial brothers and sisters who are convinced that the kingdom won't come until King Jesus returns. And so for us to try and take dominion would be sinful. Okay, so where in the story are we? From a premillennial perspective, we would be in the wilderness wanderings. Okay, secondly, from an amillennial perspective. Amillennial means, ah is the negation. There is no millennium, right? So uh, Aaron had him read, asked him to read uh, Revelation 20. Where it's the one text in all of the Bible that talks about the millennium and the thousand year reign of Christ. Um, and so the, the question is, when does that happen? A premillennial says Jesus comes back before we go into the kingdom. An amillennialist says that the kingdom never comes to this world. It's a, it's a, it's a negation. It's amill. We don't think it's coming to this world. And so all of this world is like a shadow or a type. So as I was thinking about the story, where would we be? It would be akin to, think about this with me. Those of you who know your Bible well, how did Moses build the tabernacle in the wilderness? Where did he get the idea? Did he just say, you know what we should do is do a rectangle and we should just kind of do it these measurements and it would kind of be neat if we did this or that? <laughs> you know, the scriptures say that when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law, that God showed him not plans like this is how I want it done, but he showed him a heavenly reality, a greater tabernacle, a greater temple in the sky. This is one of the mega themes of the book of Hebrews. That God showed Moses something heavenly and real, and what he made was a shadow or a copy. He made, a, he made it after the pattern. And so an amillennialist would say, <clears throat> we're kind of in that scheme, that everything that we can touch, taste, feel, see, all of it is smoke and mirrors. The real is up in heavenly, it's in the ether. And so what they do is they take <clears throat> some verses that Jesus said as simplistic, axiomatic redefinitions of every other text in the scripture. So they would say, they would take Jesus when, uh, when Jesus was on trial for his life. He said, my kingdom is not of this world, right? And so they say, look, the kingdom is not of this world. The first beatitude um, is that the, the promise of the first beatitude is that you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. You will, uh, there's the kingdom of heaven. So they say it's a heavenly kingdom. It never comes to earth. The problem is, they use that idea to reinterpret very clear texts of Scripture concerning the kingdom. Scriptures like, Jesus taught us to pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. His name in heaven right now is being hallowed. Jesus says, pray that God would work and do whatever he needs to do to make his name hallowed. That his kingdom would come. Where? Presumably to the earth. Because his next phrase is, 
that we're asking God for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as in heaven. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. It's not a heavenly smoke mirrors uh, always in the clouds kingdom. It comes to this earth and we're promised that it will come to this earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Jesus said. Um, the psalmist, uh, the father, says to the son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And then he says, and you will not just have them, but what? Can anybody tell me? You will rule them. You will be in charge of them. You will be the king of those nations. <clears throat> so, again, in this view, the world is trending downward. There's nothing that really can be done about the apostatization of the world. It's just continually going downward, and the kingdom never comes to it, ever. Now, the other third view is called postmillennialism. And the question is, where in the story is a postmillennial? Right? Postmillennial, like a premillennialist, says we are this side of redemption. We're this side of the Exodus. We've been set free from Pharaoh, who is Satan. We've been, we've been saved from the wrath of God, passed over under the new and greater Passover lamb that we've gone up on Sinai. The Holy Spirit has written his law in our hearts. And a postmillennialist would say, we've already been through the wilderness wandering. That was the Jewish generation that rejected their Messiah. Okay, and I had you last week. I exhorted everybody to read Matthew 24, and we'll look at some of the texts there in a moment. Um, but the idea is we <clears throat> that generation has already passed away, and now we are under King Joshua. We're under Joshua con uh, conquering the land. We are taking and, and, um, and bringing to heal land that God has already given. It's an amazing thing. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Joshua chapter 1, and I want to show you this Old Testament picture, and I want you to see if you can hear in these words anything resembling the Great Commission. So, in Joshua chapter 1, if you can't turn that fast, just listen. We're told, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, that Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all the people, into the land that I am giving you. To the people of Israel. Every place, listen to this promise, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. Ask this question Is he going to give them the land, or has he given them the land? It's already been gifted. You would say, Wait a second. In Jericho, they're not honored. They're not honoring the Lord in Jericho or any of the other cities. So how can you say that you've already given the land? He's given them the land that's yet to be conquered. And in verse 4, he says, From the wilderness, he names the borders, the wilderness, the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. And listen to this promise. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Imagine that promise. No man, Joshua, shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Does that sound familiar to anybody? No one will be able to withstand you. Jesus says to his church, I will build it, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus says, not, hey, if you will be obedient, then God will give me the nations. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth, he gives the parameters, every bit of it, has already been given to me. You go, therefore, and win what's mine. Disciple what's mine. Those nations are mine. Now go disciple them. And the Great Commission ends with, I will be with you always. Is that accidental? No, it's not. Jesus is putting us, I believe, firmly here in the conquering of the land. So, so this view, a postmillennial view, holds that the world as it exists right now has already been 
given to Christ. Jesus is not going to be Lord. He is Lord. But what we see, amen, what we see is his, um, we still see some of his people in rebellion against him. And so like the land that belonged to Joshua was yet to be conquered, this view believes that it is a Christian's obligation, duty, and joy to go conquer the land. To go conquer the land. Now let me uh, do something really quick because a lot of times when Christians hear the word conquer, they think swords, guns, politics. They think all of those things. So let me sub out some some words, biblical words like conquer, biblical words like dominion. Let me sub out some of those things and say things like uh, persuade by open proclamation and discipleship through the means that God has given the church. How and what means has God given the church to subdue the nations? I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Our weapons are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds, to tear down every lofty opinion, raise, raising itself against God. Our weapons are the gospel, the church, the family. These are our weapons. Okay? So if you hate the word dominion or conquering, great news. Preach the gospel. Be a part of the church. Build your families. Okay, so those are the three views. You're either... You have to pick one or the other. You're either in the wilderness wanderings, uh, or you're sort of never, the kingdom is never going to come, or you are in the land under Joshua. And let me just say one more thing before we move on. In the same way that if you believe that you're in the wilderness wanderings, it's sinful for you to try and take dominion. In the same way, if you believe that you are under Joshua being commanded to go take dominion, and you don't endeavor to do that, you're being sinful. Does that make sense to you? So you're, So the question is, why, why does any of this matter? Why does it matter if you're an A-mill, a pre-mill, or post-mill? Well, let me, I, I've told you this before, I'm going to tell you again in case uh, some of you were not here. The, the question is, my answer is, um, why does any of this eschatology matter? The answer is because expectations determine actions. Like what you expect from the world, what you expect in life, is going to determine the things that you'll do, the things that you'll long for, work for, pray for. So let me give you a, um, a picture here. If you, and you should maybe pray about doing this, if you ever wanted to buy and own a circus, you should do it. It'd be amazing. How do you get elephants, huge African Indian elephants, to be a part of your, your circus and not trample everybody, not just run and go wherever they want to do? Do you know how to train them? Well, you have to get them when they're babies. This is going to be fun. Watch the kids when I tell this uh, story. So you have to get baby elephants. And what you do is you drive and concrete a big like, telephone pole down deep into the ground. And you chain them by their back leg with a little bit of leash on it. You chain a baby elephant to the post. And you take his mother, who's already been trained, away. But not super far. You keep her close enough to where a baby can smell his mother to where a baby can hear his mother, to where a baby can call for his mother, and she can do all of the same things, but he can't get out. And so that baby will be close to his mom, and he'll pull and pull and pull until the shackle around his leg cuts into his skin, he's bleeding, he's weakening, he's terrified, he's scared, all of these things, and he'll keep trying and keep trying, and I'm told, that there comes a moment where his spirit breaks. And he becomes convinced that no matter how hard I pull, I can't pull this thing out of the ground. And because elephants have great memories, from then on, you never have to sink a conduct like a concrete post. You can take a T-post, tamp it down into the ground, chain him up, and as a, however big they get, as a, as a full-grown elephant, he'll never pull again. Because he is convinced that it won't work. How does that apply to eschatology? Well, if you think that the church cannot reach the nations, you won't try. If you think that no matter what we do, we're in the wilderness wanderings, and so Jesus said to the disciples of the nations, we don't really know what he means by that, and so we're just not going to try. Your expectations are going to determine 
your actions. And let me just say as well, expectations is a common everyday synonym for the word we use as faith. What do you believe God is going to do in this world? What do you believe? So when you, when you think about Jesus saying, go disciple the nations, that's a, um, that's a command that all Christians everywhere be. They amil, postmil, everybody agrees on that. Amen? Should we go disciple the nations? Yes, we should. Now, the question is, to which nation, that's generally the idea, the question is, to which nation particularly did he send us to, right? If you're a missionary, like uh, I was thinking about this, Ryan and Audrey uh, feel like the Lord is calling them into missions, and so they're convinced that they're to go into another culture and take the gospel and plant a church, okay? So generally they know that, but then at some point they have to particularly determine which nation is it going to be. Am I going to go to the Congolese? Where are we going to go? And the reality is every single Christian ought to answer the same question. You're sent to the nations. You say, well, I'm not on the mission field. No, but you are somewhere. So where are you living and what nation is, is Jesus intending to disciple through you? So if we believe that Christ, as an example, sent our church to Fayette County, Texas, we would pray for it, and then we would attempt to disciple the county, and we would work to it. If we don't believe that he wants us to disciple the county, we will not ask for it, and we will not work for it. Does that make sense? Your expectations determine everything. Okay, so let me evaluate these uh, views. Just say a quick word of, uh, uh, about them. First of all, amillennialism, in my view, and by the way, Great men who I love to death hold all of these views. I have heroes that are amillennial, heroes that are premillennial, heroes that are postmillennial. So, uh, so you can be really good, God-loving, Jesus-loving guy and be diff and differ and be wrong. Okay, amillennialism, in my view, is absolutely right out. It cannot be, and, and this is the reason. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, he meant that it does not originate with this world. But the gesture of the, of the scripture from Old and New Testament has always been heaven coming to earth. The glories of heaven becoming reality on this earth. Jesus, who said, my kingdom is not from this world or of this world, Jesus taught us to pray. Pre-mill, post-mill, all-mill guys all agree on this. Jesus taught us to pray that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Okay? So the difference between pre- and post-mill guys uh, is, uh, just concerns the, uh, okay, pre-millennialism and post-millennialism both believe that at some point in history, this world will obey Jesus and the people in it. Pre and post agree on that. Their only question is, when is that going to happen? Amil guys say, it's never going to happen. That's why, in my view, it just doesn't accord with Scripture. We're promised in the Old Testament a prophecy about, uh, about the future of this world. That God says, I have sworn that my glory will cover the earth as water covers the sea. That's what's going to happen to this world. The only question is when. And so amillennialism, in my view, is right out. Premillennialism is, is a view, and this is probably, like I say, the predominant view that, uh, that most in America hold to, most evangelicals. They believe that, like, next up in the eschatological plan is, is a, a tribulation, a rapture, either before it, in the middle of it, or after the, after the tribulation. There's going to be a rapture that God is going to take his church out of the world. Uh, there's going to be, as we read, a first resurrection and a kingdom for a thousand years reigning on the earth with Christ. And then there's going to be a second final resurrection where everybody, believers and non, will be raised from the dead. They will be sentenced to eternal life or eternal death. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Now, I grew up as a premillennial. All of my heroes growing up were premillennial. It was my church. It was my Bible college. It was my seminary. Everybody viewed this, had this view. And I can remember being, being really young, probably younger than I should have been, to, to have 
um, been posing a question about particularly Matthew 24. So when I was a committed premillennial, my I still had a huge question about Matthew 24. And so I'd like you to turn with me to Matthew 24. I'm just going to show you this briefly. Um, just thinking about uh, thinking about the idea of, of there's two things: the tribulation and then the coming kingdom. And so I knew I have known for a long time that Matthew 24, from a premillennial perspective, is really hard to interpret because Jesus says some very simple things to understand that don't fit the premillennial scheme. So in 24:1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. They were showing him, pointing out how glorious the temple was. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And Jesus said in verse 2, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. An enigmatic statement. I'm gonna, the, the temple is going to fall. We read, they go down, if you knew the geography, they go down from the Temple Mount to the Kidron Valley, up onto the Mount of Olives, and they're sitting on the Mount of Olives, which overlooks the Temple Mount. It's right there. You cannot miss it. It's right there. So the next the, the next uh, bit of this chapter is them looking over the Temple Mount, and he's just said, that temple is coming down. They say in verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and asked him three questions. Tell us when will these things be? Answer the question, Christian. What things are they asking about? Well, you just said the temple is going to come down. When will these things be? He's talking about the destruction of the temple. Secondly, what will be the sign of your coming? And thirdly, of the end of the age. So they ask him about when is the temple coming down? When are you returning? When are you coming into your kingdom? And when is the end of the age? And Jesus answered them. And he says several things. We won't look at it all. But look down in verse 24, 21. Jesus says, for then there will be a great tribulation. This is the tribulation that we all know about. The seven year tribulation written about at length in the book of Revelation. Then there will be great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. Okay, so he's, he's describing for them the great tribulation. Now look in verse 29. Skip down to verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation the, uh, of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from the end, from, uh, from the end of heaven to from one end of heaven to another. Now pause for a second. So we look at that and we say, sun going dark, moon turning to blood, Jesus returning. This is obviously future. It has to be. Because the sun is shining and the stars are in the sky and the moon is not turned to blood. Here's the problem. Look at verse 32. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you, he's talking to his disciples that ask this question, when is the temple coming down? When are you coming into the kingdom? When is, uh, what was the third one? Oh, when is, what's the sign of the end of the age? When you men, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gate. Uh, verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So let me just state it as easily as I can. Jesus, by saying, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things, Jesus stakes his claim to be a truth teller on the fact that he will return in this generation. So what do we make of the sun going dark, the moon going, uh, the moon going to blood, stars falling, powers of heavens? That's apocalyptic that's a, an apocalyptic way of talking about a kingdom being overthrown. You can read that clean section of your Bible, 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Sephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, all the prophets. When you read about Old Testament apostate Israel and how God promised to visit them in wrath and judgment, he says, I will come to you. And he talks about the sun going dark, moon uh, not giving its light, stars falling. And he says, I'm coming. And he comes to them in the form of the Babylonians who destroyed the temple. And Jesus is saying the very same thing. I'm coming to you within this generation. And he came to them in the form of the Roman Empire. And he put an end to the Jewish aeon, the Jewish age, right? When Jesus rises from the dead, you have the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost. The church has, has begun. And alongside with it, you have Jews in the temple sacrificing. Even though all those sacrifices were pre preparatory to bring us to Christ. And so that generation rejected their Christ and he came to them to put them down. So I always knew this is a huge problem for premillennial folks. But I remained a premillennial because Revelation 20 makes it sound like Jesus returns first. And then there's a resurrection and then his people Rule and reign with him on the earth. And I'm like, that hasn't happened. We've never. And so I, for, for years now, I've been a premillennial with a problem with Matthew 20. I don't know how to take it. But I need somebody to help, help me understand how a postmillennial could possibly look at Revelation 20 and say a resurrection has already happened. And that we're ruling and reigning with Christ on the earth. And then somebody named, with the last name of Bonson did it for me. Show me a resurrection. Okay. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. And God raised you up with Christ. What else did he do in, in Ephesians 2? He seated you with him in the heavenly places. So we've just been told in Ephesians that, that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him above all rule and power and dominion and authority. He is the reigning Lord of everything. And then Ephesians says, you were dead, and he caused you to live, and he seated you with Christ, and we are now reigning with him as his church. Jesus said in John 5, an astounding text, he said, the time is coming and is now here where the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. What is he talking about? He's talking about in his day. The gospel going out and men, women, children who were dead in their trespasses and sins, living in the kingdom of darkness in rebellion against God, would hear and believe and be born again, raised from the dead. So, premillennialism, if, if, that's, if that's, your, uh, if that's your, uh, your, your view, that's, that's totally fine. We can still share fellowship. There's no reason to divide fellowship over any of these things. But that's something that you've got to deal with, is the great tribulation. And whatever you do, you do need to know, Jesus said, talking about the great tribulation, that the world has never experienced the like, and it never will experience the like. And it would happen to this generation. He said, the men who rejected their Christ and their king, that the, the righteous blood from Adam, all the righteous blood ever spilled, would come upon the men of that generation. So, let me give you an analogy. Are you forgiven of your sins, Christian? Do you believe that you're forgiven of your sins? Of course you do. Let me ask you a trickier question. Are you right now the righteousness of God in Christ? Are you? This is, some, this is an idea that changed my life in college. Where uh, he was studying 2 Corinthians 5.21. God the Father made God the Son who knew no sin at all. He made him to be sin on our behalf. So that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. And so he made us all stand up. And he said, if you're as righteous as uh, Mother Teresa stays standing. I stayed standing because she was Catholic. If you're as righteous as Osama bin Laden, stay standing. We all stayed standing. And then he said, if you're as righteous as the Apostle Paul, stay standing. And everybody sat down with Crystal Stanzak and a red-haired uh, gal in our church. We're all like roundly condemning her silently for thinking that she's as righteous as the Apostle Paul. And he looks at her and he says, if you're as righteous as the Lord Jesus Christ, stay standing. And she stood like a blasphemer. 
And he looked at her and he said, you're the only person in this room who's understood the extent of the gospel. In Christ Jesus, you have been made the righteousness of God. It's an amazing truth. By faith is a gift. Now, positionally, you are the righteousness of God. Let me ask you, were you the righteousness of God in your hands and feet this week? Did you love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? Do you love your neighbors yourself? No. So conditionally, you're growing, you're being sanctified, but you're not yet what you already are in Christ. If that makes any sense at all. And I would say this, that, that sanctification process never is finished until you meet the Lord face to face. But you should not be a pessimist about your sanctification. Amen? Like, you shouldn't just say, well, I'm never going to reach perfection, and so I'll just throw in the towel, and who cares? So even if you're a premillennial who says, like, well, the kingdom is not going to come until Jesus comes back, who cares? Build it anyway. In the same way that you should strive to be sanctified in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So I'm going to try and go through these really quick, but I want to just show you some problems with premillennialism. I've just told you we don't need to divide fellowship, and so if I don't convince you, that's totally fine. I just want to make you aware of some things. Jesus said, so some problems with premillennialism. One is wisdom. Jesus said that wisdom is vindicated by her children, which is another way of saying, look at the fruit of what you have been believing. And so as we look at our nation and we look at like the, the state of things, we are a culture that the, the largest, we're a democratic society where the, the majority wins. The majority decides who's lawmakers and what laws they're going to write, all of those things. Uh, and the largest voting bloc in America, by far, it's not even close, is evangelical Christian. Now, I'm not giving you exact statistics because they were all over the board. The lowest I saw was like 28% evangelical Christian. The highest I saw was like 56. It's somewhere in there. But it's not even close. We're the largest voting bloc, as, as uh, political people think about that. We are the largest. So how in the world... In a, in a nation where the, the biggest voting bloc are evangelical Christians who believe that Jesus is Lord, that the Bible is true, that you must repent of your sin and be born again. Like, that's what we believe. How can, how can that be the case? And then you have another, uh, another voting bloc, LGBTQ voters, less than 5% of our society. They get their curriculum into public schools, and we can't even get a fair hearing into them. How is that? Why can that possibly be the case? Right? How can that be? The answer is that the vast majority of American Christians are premillennial, meaning we don't think we can take dominion. We don't think we can disciple the nations. And so we don't try. And so we sit around and we say, man, the world is going dark. Meanwhile, it's the Christians who think the world is going dark. There's nothing we can do. We'll withdraw from everything. So we'll, we'll take the light of life himself who's been put in us, in the church, in our families, and we'll withdraw out of the world. And then we wonder that the world is going dark. Who can right this ship? The answer is you or nobody. Because Jesus is going to do it through the church. Okay? An amazing irony, right? I, I, I told you, most of my heroes are premillennials, and I'll listen to them lament the fall of our nation. We were once a great nation, they will say. But look at us now. And the irony is, ask this question to yourself. How were we ever a great nation? The answer is that when we were founded, there was a group of men who knew it was their job to disciple this place. And so they did. And there was greatness in this nation. Were we perfect? Of course not. But we were much better off because they knew it was their job. Uh, a warning. I've told you, some of my heroes are premillennials, right? But I want to I issue a warning just about our common enemy. Paul says we're not ignorant of his schemes, and sadly a lot of Christians are ignorant of his schemes. What does Satan want to do? He wants to keep men from hearing the good news that God in Christ, dealt with their sin once for all. And that they can receive the gift of eternal life by faith alone in Christ alone. 
And, and so he's, he wants to keep the message. Jesus talks about the gospel of the kingdom when it comes to people. Satan loves to take it, to, to, to steal that word. Now, what if he loses that fight? What if you hear and believe? Satan knows what so many Christians don't, that God has never broken his covenant promises to anybody ever in the history of mankind. If God, if you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and through the preaching of the gospel, he made you alive together with God, with Christ, and sealed you with his Holy Spirit of promise, causing you to be born again, covenanting to be your God forever. He will never change his mind. And so Satan knows, I've lost the fight. That he's no longer in my kingdom. But he has a strategy for those as well. And his strategy is to keep them occupied with all the wrong things. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, if, if Satan, if you, if you picture a ship... And Satan is going to flood the ship and just sink it by poking a hole in it. What he wants is all of the Christians running around with fire extinguishers waiting for the fire to start. Because fire extinguishers can't bail water. He wants us motivated about all the wrong things. And so when many Christians hear the, word, hear the, the phrase, disciple the nations or take dominion, they think about war, they think about voting, they think about presidents and Washington, instead of thinking about... Christ, instead of thinking about marriage, training up your children in the faith, Christian education, right worship of God in the church, impacting your local government, the customs, the culture, the art, the business of where you live. That's what it would look like. It doesn't look like January 6th, like marching on, uh, you know, marching on Washington. It doesn't look like that. Satan wants us to think it looks like that so that we'll keep out of it. If you want to take dominion, love your wife as Christ loves the, love the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, raise up your children in the fear and of the Lord. So, just a warning. There's a weakness as well, right? We, you look at the amount of Christians in America and just realize for half a moment that if we were ever, if we could ever unite on something, the, the potential we have been, I don't know if you know this, but we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. The, 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 the God who built the world has put his spirit into his church. Name the thing that would be impossible for us if it's according to the will of God. Name it. You can't. You can't. We're the largest voting block in the nation, and if we knew what was going on, and could, uh, and could unite, we could do great and wonderful things for the sake of our neighbors and our nation and the glory of our God. Uh, lastly, is just the withdrawal of premillennialism, that it is a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. We think the world is going to hell, nothing can save it. And so when you talk about, like, I, I've told you this repeatedly, but I, I want this to sink in. I was taught, I was discipled all my life not to buy green bananas because Jesus is coming back like tomorrow at lunchtime. And so there, there were people in, in, in my life growing up that like saw Christ in a, uh, in a godly young woman and said, man, I really want to marry her, but Jesus is coming back in a week. And so like, is it sinful for me knowing that like we probably won't have time to like, uh, you know, have kids or, uh, or build a home or start a business? Like we don't have time for those things because... He's coming back any moment. Is it just selfish of me because I want to be intimate with this lady to, to pursue marriage? And it's like that thinking is what causes us to be just like always faddish in the church. Instead of doing what our forefathers in the faith did and building long works. Okay, So beware of the withdrawal tendency of a, of a pre-millennial. Okay, I'm nearly done. Promise. What should we expect? What should we expect of the world if we believe that the world is not going to get worse, but that God through Christ, that Christ through his church is wanting to disciple the nations? What if that were actually true? What, what would it look like for us? First and foremost, it would look like optimism, right? It's one of the most frustrating things. You, you listen to Christians talking about an idea and they'll just end every conversation with, well, it's only going to get worse. What if that is wrong? What if that's not Christ speaking, but Satan speaking? What if? What if it's wrong? We should be optimistic. Secondly, we should be hard workers. Right? We can't sit on our thumbs and wait 
when Christ has sent us and commanded us to disciple the nations. Okay? We should expect risk. We should expect risk. Think about this. Our forefathers in the faith in America, were they sure that when they held a high standard of obedience to laws and freedom, personal autonomy, when they demanded of England that England would keep her constitution, and they pledged their, uh, their life, their liberty, their property, their sacred honor to these things, did they know for sure they were going to win that fight, or was it a risk? It was a risk. When Luther nailed 95 Theses to the door and, and started leading this, uh, this Protestant Reformation, which when it got into full swing was aimed at ecclesiastic and civil authority that had gone rogue to Christ. It was aimed at those two uh, rogue parties. Did he know it was going to work? Of course he did it. Everybody else had died and people had tried it. But he risked it anyway. When Paul went to preach in foreign cities, did he not know that if Jesus didn't show up, his whole life was going to be a, an abject failure? Of course he knew that. But he risked it anyway. So, we have to get comfortable with optimism, with hard work, with risk, with patience. I put patience here because so often your, your counsel will be patient, be patient, be patient. And I'm all for patience. But patience as we obey what Christ told us to obey. Like be patient as you pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on the earth as you work towards those ends. Be patient in those ways. Jesus told us about the kingdom, that it would not come overnight. It would be like planting a mustard seed and it would grow to be the biggest one in the garden. And I promise you, that doesn't happen overnight. There are times where, so think about your sanctification, there are times where you look at yourself a week ago and say, I'm the same or maybe worse. Amen? But if you look at 20 years ago, you might see some progress. And so by God's grace, you're not going to die at the same level of holiness that you are right now because he's going to sanctify you. And so we should be patient in those things. All right. Three questions for you to think on this week. And I'm, and I'm done. First, did Jesus send us to disciple the nations, yes or no? Just ask yourself that. Did Jesus send the church to disciple the nations? Don't make the funny workaround of like, Discipling people from the nations. That's not what he said. And he's a great communicator. If anybody wants to call Jesus a bad communicator, that's on you. Jesus said what he meant, and he meant what he said. Go disciple the nations that I own. So that God's word to Abraham would be fulfilled. In you, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Did he send us to disciple the nations? Yes or no? Secondly, in sending us to disciple the nations... Did he send us on a mission that would ultimately fail? Yes or no? Can you imagine Jesus saying, I'm sending you on a suicide mission that I know is going to fail. Do it anyway. Or did he really mean what he said when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it? And lastly, what particular nation did he send our church to? Don't stay at the sky level. Yes, he sent us to the nations, but we don't know which one. Yes, we're going to succeed, but we don't know what work to start. If, if the church would just ask herself, did he send us? Yes, he did. Did he intend for, to, to prosper us and to let us see fruit and victory? Yes, he did. So who are we to go to? Who should we be strategizing for? Who should we be praying for? And who should we be working toward? What nation should we be working to disciple. My answer to that question is, we're here. So let's do Fayette County. That's my, that's my conclusion. Okay, so pray on that. Let me preface for communion. Ephesians 2 says that though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places far above all rule and power and dominion and authority. This Lord's Day, we have ascended into the heavens. We have conversed with Almighty God. We have heard instruction and reproof from His law. And I hope to God you have heard assurance of love and pardon from His gospel. And though we would all much prefer to remain here in His courts and drink in the joy of His presence, He's getting ready to nourish us for the week and then send us back into the darkness to bring light. So this is...
scale is meant to sustain you in that endeavor, but not just to survive. Please hear me out on this. This meal is meant to sustain you in that fight. MREs are not given to Marines so that Marines would survive. What are Marines for? Victory. Eat this so you can win the fight. That's the point. Satan knows that the most powerful people in the world are forgiven people. People loved by God. People who are spirit-filled and banded together for a common cause. The church, alive to its Christ and its mission, terrifies the enemy of our souls. Because that church is filled with joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. So our power as a church starts right here at the table. You've blown it again. Christ has dealt with all of your failures again. And he welcomes you again to this table. At this fellowship, you participate in the heavenly realities that are designed to take over the world. So for the sake of the broken, the dying, the lost, come to the table. Be received by God. Be useful to the world. Come. Welcome to King Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father God, we, uh, we would all take over the world if we could. Sometimes we just look at the state of our homes and, and quit before we try. And so we ask, Lord, that this would be a table where um, the mercy that we need would be ours so that we could get our, our cells and our homes and our church um, back into right fellowship with you, that we might know joy and intimacy with you. And Lord, we ask all of these things so that when we go out from these walls and when you scatter us to the four winds to be in a world that desperately needs to hear about your grace and your mercy, that we would be able to be faithful there, that we would have hope to offer them because you have forgiven us of our sin. And in the forgiveness of sin, all of us know who you are. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you minister to us through the sacrament? Would you bless? Would you draw near? Would you give comfort? Would you give strength? Would you give joy? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.